Hello, and welcome to the Sea Control Podcast. I'm Nathan Miller. Today, I speak with Dr. Colin Martin about the Spanish Armada and the book he co-authored with Jeffrey Parker. I edited and produced this episode. Here at SimSec, we aim to further international maritime peace and security through an exchange of ideas and the rigor of critical thought and writing. If you haven't already, please check out simsec.org for new articles on the most important maritime topics. If you would like to contribute to the discussion, please check out the Write for SimSec tab to learn how you can submit articles for publication. We are currently looking for articles discussing integrated naval campaigning in partnership with the Naval Postgraduate School Foundation. Submissions are due October 25th. Please check out simsec.org for writing prompts and further information. And with that, Kimber's Men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Hello and welcome aboard the Sea Control podcast. I'm Nathan Miller. My guest today is Dr. Colin Martin, and we're discussing the seminal work that he co-authored with Jeffrey Parker entitled Armada, the Spanish Enterprise and England's Deliverance in 1588. Colin, welcome aboard. Uh, Can you start by telling our listeners a little bit about your background, please? Well, I've got a slightly unconventional background. Uh, I didn't do very well at school because I was bone idle. Uh, (laughs) um, And uh, uh, I tried to get into aviation, uh, but uh, although I got partway into, uh, I became a flying instructor, um, but I couldn't take it any further for medical reasons. My eyesight wasn't good enough. Uh, So in desperation, I joined the army for a bit. And there I learned to dive because I'd been posted to Cyprus, uh, which has got wonderfully clear water around it and uh, wonderful ancient wrecks. And um, when I came out of the army, uh, I struggled a bit to find to make a living. Uh, Eventually, I I homed in on freelance journalism, uh, specializing in historical and archaeological things. And that's what introduced me to archaeology. And in 1968, uh, I read a newspaper article to the effect that uh, an expedition was going to southwest Ireland to look for a Spanish Armada shipwreck. Uh, and I thought, well, that would make a good story. So I <laughs> I jumped in my little minivan and drove to Ireland and uh, meeting the expedition members in the in the pub. Uh, after half an hour, I had been appointed as the project archaeologist because in those days uh, there were lots of people who could dive and lots of people who were archaeologists, but very few people who who could do both, even though the archaeology, uh, in my case, was at a very amateur level. So I, I, I literally jumped in at the deep end and uh, uh, a long uh, search for this uh, wreck, uh, which was very well documented. Uh, we eventually found uh, part of it um, and uh, spent the next two years um, surveying and, and excavating it. And I, I was able to draw on what some of the pioneers ha- had done, particularly Professor George Bass in America, uh, who had effectively created the discipline of nautical archaeology, underwater archaeology. So I followed his guide uh, like a Bible, and it worked quite well. And so gradually, I, I sort of became an archaeologist. And um, I, I moved on from there to look for another Armada wreck, 
up in the Shetland Islands in Scotland. And uh, we found that one. And that that told us more about uh, Armada ships and their, their armament. And finally, I got involved with uh, the excavation of one of the Armada's largest ships, uh, which had not so much a, 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 a naval ship, uh, she was a, a, an invasion transport. She got an army on board, um, uh, not just the soldiers, but also a, a massive uh, artillery siege train. So that brought me really into looking at Armada wrecks for what they contained and what the, 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 their contents meant to uh, an understanding of the Armada in a wider sense, because it, it was literally allowing us to go on board Armada ships. That is, uh, that's quite amazing how, how you got into it. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, well, could, could I just go on there a little bit? Because I have to explain how I got into academia. Absolutely, um, please. Uh, after uh, working on these three Armada ships, I had become a sort of expert insofar as anyone was an expert in this field in those days. This is the early, uh, the, the late 60s, early 70s. And happily, Somebody uh, who was also in nautical archaeology knew somebody up in the University of St. Andrews. He was actually a professor of English, but he was very interested in, in naval matters. He'd served in the Second World War in the Navy and had a distinguished record. And he got fascinated by the idea of somebody, you know, diving on the wrecks of the, of the Armada. And uh, to cut a long story short, um, St. Andrews got in touch with me, the university, and um, um, allowed me to set up a research institute in the first instance. Uh, I, I think I was paid a pound a year just to keep it legal, uh, but uh, I, I had the resources of their development department, and they were able to get uh, funding from various sources. So I established myself at St. Andrews, and uh, after three or four years, uh, they offered me a permanent lectureship. Um, and that was where I met Jeffrey Parker, because he was he was a young lad in those days, um, uh, making his way as, as a historian with a very particular interest in, in the, the Spain of Philip II and, and the Armada. So um, he and I naturally gravitated together and we found that our various our two different disciplines um, he finding all the documents and, and, and interpreting them uh, and me uh, uh, assessing the uh, actual content of the, of, of the ships. And we saw that, that at an early stage, this, this could integrate. Uh, it wasn't a question of one side being one sort of discipline and the other being an unrelated one. Uh, they integrated incredibly well because the sort of things you got in the documents, you didn't get on the wrecks. The sort of things you got on the wrecks, you got in the documents. So it was a natural combination. And uh, uh, Jeffrey became my supervisor for the PhD I eventually got. Well, that's wonderful. And uh, as a reminder to our listeners, uh, all opinions here are our own and not reflective of any of the institutions with which we might be otherwise associated. So, uh, Colin, kind of turning to the book, I was looking at your earlier work with Jeffrey uh, that you did on the 400th anniversary of the Armada. Mm -hmm. um, and I was kind of curious, what made you publish this version and uh, what has what new research has been done? Uh, what updates uh, were you able to add into the book since that 
uh, previous right. one was published. Yes. Well, we realized that uh, 1988 was going to be a big anniversary. Uh, there'd be lots and lots of books uh, about the Armada. And in fact, uh, uh, the title, uh, we called it the Spanish Armada, because in the first instance, we thought, no, we can't call it the Spanish Armada, because everybody else will be calling it the Spanish Armada. And then we thought, but everybody else will be thinking the same thing. So why don't we just take a, a gamble and call it the Spanish Armada? So we did. And there, were, there was, I think, one, a kid's book uh, for the a Ladybird book uh, called it the Spanish Armada. Everybody else bent over backwards trying to find a different way, of different title for it. So we were the only one that really sort of hit with the, with the, the real title of what was, it was about. Uh, and, and this was very much uh, uh, the result of the collaboration that Jeffrey and I had already been doing, uh, mainly through um, uh, his supervising my research, which was taking the archaeological evidence and relating it to the, the documentary evidence. So although it was technically a supervision, it was really a, a collaboration. And uh, the timing was such, I actually got my uh, PhD in, in 1983. And uh, uh, so as, as soon as, soon as uh, that was over, Jeffrey and I had a drink and said, why don't we do a book on this, uh, uh, joining our, our two elements? So that's, that, that's what did it. And Jeffrey, of course, uh, was and indeed still is uh, the leading historian, uh, English or Spanish, um, uh, on, on Philip II and his world. And uh, so he was ab absolutely the right person to be collaborating with because um, he had looked at uh, the major resource uh, uh, of uh, Armada documentation, which is the uh, archive at Simancas in central Spain. And amazingly, I had done a story in um, Spain in the mid-1960s, totally unrelated to the Armada, and driving through the middle of Spain, I, we came upon this nice-looking castle, and I took a photograph of it. And Jeffrey subsequently uh, said, right, uh, we, we, we talked about the dates. And he said, right, if you look at that window there, I was sitting behind it uh, looking at Armada documents. And we didn't actually meet for another sort of five or six years. Wow. So, uh, that is so, so, serendipitous to say the least. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, uh, Jeffrey had been looking at, once we, once he, got a special interest in the Armada, he went back to the archives, not just in Spain, but, but throughout Europe. Um, he had a handle on all this and um, uh, started to pull together stuff, much of which had never been really published or, or even recognized for what it was. Um, so I had at my disposal uh, the um, uh, top man on the documentation of the Armada, and he had at his disposal somebody who'd actually found all the bits and pieces that documents talked about. So it was a natural combination. It worked very well. And uh, we, we never had a, a crossword between each other. We, we just, uh, you know, we're great friends from the beginning. Sorry, you, 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 you did ask uh, about what, what happened between the first book in 1988 and, and, and the current one. Well, triggered not just by our book, but by the, the multitude of works that had been done on the Armada 
uh, uh, triggered by the uh, 400th anniversary, um, uh, an awful lot of new work had been done by a whole lot of people, uh, which was ready to be taken into account and, and analyzed and uh, linked together with other things. And of these things, the major one, the really important one, was uh, what uh, turned out to be a five volume, a massive five volume uh, work uh, sponsored by the Spanish Navy's historical department. They actually have their own historical department. And this uh, looked at, uh, transcribed uh, and published uh, this vast new corpus, which contained a lot of new material, um, which um, uh, was in, in the public domain now. So Jeffrey was able to, to uh, trawl all that material and again, you know, integrate it and, and, and put it together to make a story. Um, so so that, that, that was that. And, and um, uh, he himself had discovered uh, some other documents. Uh, Jeffrey's one of his many skills uh, is not just working in the standard archives of particular periods, but in finding little nuggets uh, all over the place. Uh, and he, he, he was especially good at this. And one absolutely mind-blowing thing he found was correspondence between three of the principal participants in the Armada actually corresponding with one another um, during the fighting. Uh, and, and two of them were complaining about the way that the headman was actually operating. Uh, the, and this is very rare to get, you know, commanders communicating with each other actually during uh, a battle. And, 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 and that, that has been a very, very major plus point to our new book. And then how did the archaeology that you did play into uh, this book? It, it, it enabled us to tell the story of the Armada uh, in conjunction with the actual hardware that was being employed, the ships, the guns, the, the invasion army, um, the, uh, the, the, the tactics, of, uh, the battle tactics and so forth. It was rather like um, telling the story of D-Day for the first time, uh, but without uh, knowledge, not, without having a tank or, 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 or a spitfire, um, you know, to look at and see what you're really talking about when, 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 when these things happen. So uh, this was our, our sort of, moment of, of truth as it were um, historians in the past uh, tended to regard archaeology just as a illust nice illustration of something they already knew but this was actually going the, a good many steps further than that actually physically coming to grips with with with, with the military hardware so turning a little bit to uh, the history that's actually in the book you mentioned uh, in the book that the people involved, uh, kind of like you said with the commanders, were pivotal to the history and that Philip II and Elizabeth knew each other personally. So how did their their uh, personal interactions uh, play into this series of events? Well, I, I probably should be asking Jeffrey this, but I don't think uh, Elizabeth and, and um, Philip uh, knew each other terribly well. Uh, they were, uh, well, the, the, um, 
Philip II uh, married Mary Tudor, Queen of England, um, before Philip became King of Spain. And uh, he, he, he came over to England. Um, and Mary Tudor uh, was very pro-Catholic. She, she had, uh, had uh, initiated pogroms uh, against Catholics in, in England and so forth. Um, Elizabeth, who was also uh, a daughter of Henry VIII, uh, so she was um, uh, Mary's half-sister, um, uh, but she was keeping her powder dry, as it were, but she was, she, she was, she was of a Protestant inclination. So we don't, I don't think there was very much contact between them while they were both in England together. Um, she was, she was the, you know, the, the, the black sheep of the family. Um, uh, but then uh, Mary died, I, I think, in, in um, uh, 1556, um, and Elizabeth became queen because she was the next in line. Um, and what we do know is that Philip proposed to her. He, he wanted to marry Elizabeth because he always had a great, great idea because he, he liked the idea of, 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 of uh, a, a marriage to the English queen because it got England on side, uh, particularly in his um, relationship with France, which was a very unsettled one. So he thought, well, when Mary died, uh, he might as well just marry the next queen and carry on as before. But Elizabeth was <laughs> kept, kept him on a hook for quite a long time and eventually turned him down. And that was that was that was a moment of, um, you know, separation. Um, and uh, Elizabeth then made it worse by allowing her sea dogs, people like Francis Drake and uh, and and John Hawkins uh, to go on these freelancing joint stock expeditions uh, to loot Spanish possessions around the globe, um, uh, uh, and 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 one of the the principal investors, uh, though she kept quite quiet about it, was Elizabeth the Queen. Um, so this didn't go down well with the Spanish. Um, and the other thing was that um, uh, the English were increasingly supporting uh, the Dutch revolt against um, the, the, the Sp their Spanish overlords. Um, so, so those were the two real major things which uh, this, you, you know, arose with, with, with uh, the, the separation of uh, good relationships with, uh, uh, between England and, and Spain. There was a, 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 an irony uh, that when um, Philip II was titular King of England, uh, he obviously wanted wanted to find something useful to do. So he said, "Your navy's in a bit of a bad state. I think I'll I'll uh, I'll get it um, you know updated a bit. We'll get some new ships built and so on." And this was the origin of many of the race-built galleons, which uh, eventually were to. Uh, perform so well against the lumbering armada ships. Speaking about turns of fate here in history, and and how someone who needs a project has you know works on the the navy. Uh, what yeah. were some of the some of the turning points in this history? Oftentimes, people, uh, lay people like myself, uh, see history as somewhat preordained, but it's far from that. Um, well. It, it is and it isn't. It's preordained in the sense that from our perspective, that is what happened. 
and you can't alter that. But it, that doesn't mean, as I know you're saying, it doesn't mean to say it couldn't have gone another way if things had been a bit different or people had just made different decisions. Um, so, yes, the, the, I, I think the interesting thing, the, the core character in the whole Armada is Philip II. And it's not really to his credit. I mean, his problem was that he was a micromanager. He wanted to be in control of everything. And he, he thought he was. He sat in his little cell in the heart of the Escorial, the great uh, uh, monastery palace that he had built. And this tiny little office in the middle of it was where he uh, was the sort of, as far as he was concerned, the center of everything. Everything from wherever had to come there, uh, he would uh, process it, uh, take it on on board, and, and, and make decisions which then were sent out uh, for everyone else to do. Now, that would have been hard enough in the days of, of uh, you know, um, um, the Internet. <laughs> you know, to, in, the day, in the 16th century, when travel, you know, <laughs> to get to somewhere took weeks, if not months, and then another set of weeks, if not months, uh, to get an answer. And the idea of you know, controlling everything from this central position uh, on this basis was just appalling because obviously events just moved on. And, and particularly uh, if one of the elements in, 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 in your, your strategy was a mobile one like an armada, uh, then, you know, it wouldn't be where it was when you got the, when you sent the last message. So it's really that communication and the belief that he could do everything. And, uh, uh, you know, he he was the only one who was was privy to all this information because he was the center of which it all came. But uh, and that was exacerbated by his conviction, which was a totally genuine one, that um, he was working in God's cause and that therefore. Um, you know, God would always be on his side, and would 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 he, uh, and he would. Uh, he was actually quite a reasonable man. He wasn't like your standard dictator, sort of yelling and bawling at everybody. Um, he was, you know, very civil and discursive, but 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 he he was always right. Um, and 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 um, in several instances, when he made wrong decisions. Um, his subordinates, many of whom were extremely competent people, um, uh, they were they would point this out to him, and he would say, "Yes, you're absolutely right to point this out to me, but you seem to forget that um, uh, we're doing this in God's cause, and that consequently all these difficulties that you quite rightly ra uh, have given rise to, uh, he 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 will he will he will sort them all out for us." And you couldn't, short of heresy, you couldn't argue with that. So, so this is really, uh, I mean, he, he was the one that got it all wrong. Uh, the original concept of the Armada was based on, um, uh, uh, what, what was the word I'm looking for? Um, was based on, on sort of combined, combined operations, uh, uh, invasion task forces, and this had worked very well in the Mediterranean, and Spain was obviously very dominant with this, but it was all about logistics and, and um, uh, mobility. Galleys, um, uh, on which this was all based, um, were so 
much uh, limited in what they could carry because their motive power, they had 15 horsepower engines, uh, which consisted of, of 100 people sort of rowing away. Um, and they had to be fed, watered, etc. And they were taking up an awful lot of the, the space, which itself was limited because the galley had to be long and sleek um, uh, in order to have the speed to um, out, out perform its enemies. Um, so the, the important thing was not just the galleys, but the bases uh, from which they operated. So this combination of a network of bases and this highly mobile um, force of, of galleys um, was the basis of, of, of Mediterranean naval strategy. Um, and it was highly, highly specialized. Um, and it was very much to do with, with complicated logistics and supply. Um, well, uh, the, the, one of the great experts, or the great expert, was the Marquis of Santa Cruz. And when Spain uh, was annexing Portugal, Spain had captured, had, 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 had invaded Portugal, but the Azores, uh, which were Portuguese, were still hanging out, way out in the Atlantic. And Santa Cruz, the great expert on invasions, um, was brought in in his declining years uh, to organize an Atlantic-based um, uh, invasion task force to, to take out the, the, the Azores. Uh, and he did this terribly effectively. Uh, he gathered together at Lisbon uh, an army and the size and equipment of the army and the nature of its composition um, was des exactly designed uh, to campaign on land um, to, to take the Azores. Then he had to work out how you get them there. So he worked how many ships he'd need uh, and then all the supplies, the munitions, etc. Every, everything down to the last pair of shoes was all meticulously calculated and gathered together a huge effort um, of, of logistics in, in a, a, a period where, you know, um, economics and production and transport were in their infancy. Um, uh, and uh, he, he got the whole lot over. Uh, they landed. There's a wonderful picture of this in the Azor, in the um, in the Escorial, in the the Hall of Battles. Uh, show the whole operation: uh, the fleet going in, landing the troops uh, with their heavy artillery, everything, and then forming up, and marching on to seize their objective. So Philip II thought, well, that's great. That's just what we need for England. So he said, wrote to Santa Cruz and said, right. Uh, make me a, a list of everything you would need to, to um, invade England, just, just you know, what it'll all cost. Um, so Santa Cruz went off and he produced this document, um, which, of course, is a much bigger operation than the Azores. And it was absolutely huge uh, and hugely expensive, drawing on or, or attempting to draw on the resources of the entire Spanish influence uh, empire and spheres of influence um, and it just wasn't workable even the king realized that this this couldn't be done um, but he the king knowing that he was always right because this was being done in god's cause uh, he he had got he asked two other people uh, for uh, their opinions one was the duke of parma um, sorting out the the um, um, the, the, the rebellion in, in the Netherlands, um, 
and 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 the other was was Santa Cruz himself, and the king said that there's a the, the original idea was far too big, was beyond management. We've got a super army uh, under the Duke of Parma in the Netherlands, uh, only a few miles from England, and why don't we therefore have a smaller armada? assembled at Lisbon, um, carrying the supplies and the backup troops and so forth. And they'll come together. Um, you know, the, the Armada will sail from Lisbon, uh, a rendezvous with Palmer's men in their invasion barges uh, in, in the Low Countries and over to England and bingo, we'll, we'll, we'll have it. Um, so that's what actually happened. But both commanders said, no, it won't work. Because um, you know, uh, first of all, uh, the invade if the if the Palmers Palmers aren't Palmers said we can creep over one dark night, um, uh, you know, and be in England before the English recognise it. And once we've got the army on shore, they're the best troops in the world. They'll walk it. Um, and S- Santa Cruz, uh, yes, S- S- Santa Cruz says says that that, that, that Really, the the big problem um, in linking up these two forces will be uh, to coordinate it, because once the Armada sails, it, it, it'll be out of touch. No one will be able to communicate it. And Palmer needs uh, at least a week's advance warning, even if he's got everything ready uh, to actually get people loaded and onto the landing craft, et cetera, et cetera. But the king came back with, you, you know, um, uh, you, you're, you're, you're quite right to point out these difficulties, uh, but you seem to forget again uh, that it's in God's cause and he'll sort it all out. So the, 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 the top Spaniards knew what the problems were, but they, 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 couldn't, they, they, they couldn't disobey. They couldn't disobey the king more so. They couldn't um, uh, disobey the God. So... So they say, as one uh, not fully identified Spaniard said, um, uh, that, that we are sailing in the hope of a miracle. That is uh, uh, that is quite the statement there, uh, <laughs> and kind of as as that alludes to, uh, the operation was ultimately a failure uh, for a multitude of reasons. Um, but I in in your book, I found the chapter uh, analysis of failure. Uh, to be particularly illuminating, um, Good. can you can you describe some of the things that that were in that chapter and some of the things that led to uh, ultimately the Armada's demise? Well, one one of the things um, that could have been different was that if the commander of the Armada a was com competent to 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 uh lead a large force in battle uh, and b if he'd been given the authority to do so now poor old medina sidonia who's a much maligned man um was a, a top class administrator it was he who got the armada when it eventually sailed to sail in really quite a reason in reasonable condition um he and he was good with people he was a bit like Eisenhower in the in, in, in the Second World War, you know. Uh, you got all these squabbling generals, um, uh, but you had this this this, this overlord who, who who was just nice to people, and he got them to do things. Medina Sidonia was a bit like that. 
he's often denigrated uh, because of the letter he wrote to the king when he was told he was to take over from Santa Cruz after Santa Cruz's death. And he wrote this rather pathetic letter saying, uh, please don't make me do this. You know, I'll, I'll make an awful, I have no experience of this sort of thing. Uh, I'll make an awful mess of it. Uh, you better get somebody else. Um, but the king insisted. Uh, and so uh, Medina Sidonia had to take it on. Now, it's pretty obvious that what Medina Sidonia was trying to do, because he certainly wasn't a coward, uh, was to say to the king, look, this is a stupid plan. It'll lead to disaster. And I'm prepared to sacrifice my own honor to give you a let out. So poor old Medina Sidonia, um, uh, you know, that, that, that was, so he wasn't the right leader. His number two, who is my particular hero, was Juan Martinez de Ricaldi, who was the uh, vice admiral of the whole fleet. He was a very experienced man and a very nice man. We've we got little examples of, of, of how caring some of these people were, especially for the people under their command. And another character, another nice man, was uh, uh, Don Alonso de Laiva, uh, who um, uh, was a very, very aristocratic young sort of galley commander. And he and Ricaldi were great friends, and they were the ones who were exchanging letters, which Geoffrey discovered. And just a little thing, that when they, they, they were uh, um, uh, in, in the, the voyage back home, around the, 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 the uh, western seaboard of Ireland, Ricaldi and, and, and Liva were, were communicating with each other, partly on technical matters uh, um, and, and partly on what had gone wrong with the Armada. But uh, uh, Rick, amazingly, Ricaldi had some live sheep still on board. Uh, these animals were, you know, they towed the, the ship's boats and the ship's boats on these big vessels were quite big and they kept the sheep on the boats. And these were not for the, the, the grandees to, to feast on. They were for the sick and injured on the, on the ships. And Ricaldi was sending across to Deliver uh, some, some sheep uh, for, 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 for Deliver's um, wounded. And that, that's just nice people. Anyway, uh, where was I? I've forgotten what question I was answering. Uh, no, I uh, I was just wondering about uh, the chapter analysis of failure and uh, uh, the oh, things yes. that you you thought led to the I guess the ultimate demise of the uh, yeah of the yes armada. yes. Um, well, first of all, the armada wasn't designed to fight a naval battle; it was designed to uh, take a. a land an invasion task force on a set um, landing place um, and to get there uh, intact and without getting, you know, dispersed by a, a major sea battle. So they, they actually evolved quite a clever plan. Uh, they had a very rigid formation uh, that was set out uh, all captains were issued with a copy of where they were to be in the in the formation, and to move from their position in that formation without authority 
was a capital offence. They'd hang for it. And one captain indeed was so hanged. Um, however, within the scattered throughout the formation were 20 or 25 special ships, not necessarily special in their power or heaviness of armament, but in the uh, ar- ar- uh, the, the, the uh, rank of the of the senior officer in terms of of, of um, uh, you know aristocratic rank. These would be men who would always want to be where honor demanded, where the fighting was thickest, and all the rest of it. And these guys and their ships were given special authority to break formation uh, on their own initiatives whenever a particular part of the formation as a whole was threatened. So there was an automatic response. If, the, if, if there was a trouble developing in one particular part of the, of, of, of the formation, these people would just, they, they, would, they, would, they would, without any further instructions, they would be where the fighting was thickest. And once they dealt with the problem, they would go back to their places in the formation. So the idea was that it wouldn't interrupt the movement forward towards the objective but it would provide a very effective um, response to any attack. So, so, so that, we, we really found that out when looking at the various sources we looked at. Um, and uh, so that was the Armada's idea. Uh, the English, on the other hand, uh, didn't want to get close and bored. Well, sorry, the, the, the great strength of the Spaniards was that they were very heavy, high ships, most of them were, um, and uh, they were packed with soldiers because they were, the main, main purpose was to transport soldiers for the invasion. Um, so um, they wanted, because the, the advantage of height and uh, having lots of soldiers was that if you could close with an enemy and actually clap sides and send all your guys across, uh, that's how you'd win the battle. Unfortunately, the English didn't want to play it that way. And they had, because, because, the, because Philip II had given them some nice ships, but they were designing them anyway. Um, and also a very major factor was they were operating close to their bases. So they didn't have to have large quantities of extraneous things or particularly all the invasion equipment that the other ships had to carry, which were bigger, heavier, clumsier and more heavily loaded so that they were not as maneuverable as the light well-rigged well-manned ships of of the English so in a sense there was a stalemate and the very beginning when the armada started its advance up the channel and came together in its special formation that was going to let it defend itself um, uh, the English uh, were really they didn't really know what to do. They said, we can't go in close because they'll board us. And if we don't go in close, we can't really hammer them to bits with our guns. So uh, at the beginning, there was a kind of standoff that the, the, um, uh, we dare not venture to put them uh, uh, amongst them, uh, their fleet being so strong, said one disgruntled Englishman. Um, but eventually... Uh, the English were just testing them, particularly people like Francis Drake. He was trying little experiments on weaker Spanish ships to see, you know, if he could outsail them. Gradually, it all came together. And eventually, 
when it was clear that the Armada didn't know where the Armada was going to land. Uh, so they were worried it might land in Plymouth or, or, or um, you know, in, in the Solent. Um, but once it got past the Solent um, and uh, the Armada's sole objective now was to make the rendezvous with Palmer, this was a difficult thing. If it was just sailing to its, its landing place, uh, it would have been much easier. But it had to link up with Palmer and it, the communications were breaking down because, you know, the, the moving fleet and the distance and all the rest of it. So um, where were we? Um, so yes, the, the, the two sides couldn't really engage. They were they were sparring. Um, the English were getting beginning to get short of ammunition, uh, um, and so once they realized, they, their experiments told them they could uh, get close enough to the Spaniards and give them a good blast of artillery fire um, uh, without laying themselves open to being boarded and, and captured. So the English decided to keep their ammunition, or keep their powder dry, so to speak, um, and, and um, wait until the critical moment arrived. The critical moment arrived when the Armada anchored off, off um, Calais, uh, trying still to make contact with and, 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 and uh, uh, escort Palmer's army across uh, to the landing ground in Kent. Um, uh, and th th at this point, the, uh, the English um, sent in fire ships. Uh, it was a very obvious move. It wasn't particularly clever. Uh, I mean, it, it was just obvious. Here is a, a large fleet anchored um, and the wind and tide are in the right direction. Set a few ships on fire and let them drift into into the the, the the armada, and it had the effect not of causing great damage but causing great panic uh, and the ships cut their anchor cables uh, or many of them did and um, were, were blown off uh, towards the east towards the sandbanks that they were trying to avoid, but fortunately for the Spaniards, there was a, a change of wind, and they blown into the North Sea. Meanwhile, Medina Sidonia and a dozen or so of his principal ships ha had stood to face the English. Here's Medina Sidonia showing his true mettle. Uh, uh, he stood and they let the, the, his, his fleeing comrades uh, escape into the North Sea. Uh, but at this point, the uh, uh, English, really having saved up their ammunition for the critical point, uh, uh, tore in, and there was a battle, uh, and the English weren't exactly victorious, but they, they gave the, the Spaniards a hammering, um, and uh, they then withdrew. And the English had to withdraw, because they had run out of ammunition, they hadn't any left. So they were, they and England were at that point totally defensive. If the Armada had known, it could have gathered itself together and just sailed sedately to, into to the land. And then there's nothing the English could have done. But that's not what happened. They went up into the North Sea. And Medina Sidonia had really only one option uh, because, uh, um, uh, you know, they, they, they were in no condition to fight. Uh, the, the opportunity to link up with Palmer, make the invasion was lost. And so they, 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 they went home and they had to go home around the top of, of Britain 
and that's where so many of them got wrecked. But there, were, uh, there was a, a, another feature uh, that, that we did find, that when we found the first Armada wreck uh, off the southwest of Ireland, um, we actually only found the bottom of the ship, which had dropped out. She'd hit a rock, sunk very quickly, uh, and the upper works had broken away and drifted with the tide uh, to, to an unknown place. Uh, so all we found was the bottom of the ship. But it was absolutely crammed full of cannonballs. Now, this was strange, or it was strange to us, because all of the, one of the major reasons that the Spaniards had, had failed was that they'd run out of shot. And this was in all the history books. You know, it was somebody, somebody suggested it in the 19th century and everybody else copied it. But here we, here we had a ship that was absolutely full of the things. So we had to explain this. Um, uh, and we went to find another Armada wreck, um, which we hoped we were going to find. Gun we didn't find any guns on that first Armada wreck. They'd all gone with the rest of the ship to places unknown. Uh, so we looked, for, we looked at the sources and we targeted on a ship um, on Fair Isle uh, between Orkney and Shetland, way in the north of Britain. And we found that ship, the El Grand Griffon. And again, lots and lots and lots of ammunition, but also um, lots of guns as well. So we were able to test the quality of some of the guns um, and find that at least some of them had been very badly made, uh, were probably not only inaccurate, but highly dangerous to whoever <laughs> loaded and fired them. So that was that was interesting. And then we got involved in this final Armada wreck uh, where we'd got any number of guns, including the siege guns that the army was going to uh, land in, Britain, in England to support the advance on London. Um, uh, and we've, what, what the most important find was, was a little wooden stick about a foot long. Uh, and it had engraved on one side a set, of, a set of graduations, each had a number uh, beside it. And then on the other side was a, another set, uh, the same sort of general spacing, but different uh, overall dimensions. And we identified this as a gunner's rule. And it was, it was an artillery uh, implement, which uh, allowed you to, you, you would put it across the, the, uh, the mouth of the cannon you wanted to find a cannonball for, and you'd see what graduation it said, and the number would be the, the number of pounds uh, of weight that the cannonball would be. So you then had another set of things, of which we found, I think it was three, uh, which were uh, uh, round wooden gauges, um, uh, which you would go, go down and, and you'd simply use to from the ammunition store you'd select uh, a, a ball that fitted uh, you know the, the 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 round gauge and that would be the one that you put in i mean pretty obvious stuff when you think about it except except when you start doing the mathematics you actually measure these things uh you equate the individual um uh measurements to the diameter of the, the ball and the pounds weight of shot it should be and they just don't match. They, they just don't work. 
Uh, and the errors are all, you know, they're, they're not constant errors. They're just all over the place. The only thing is that if you were one gunner and you uh, had one set of these things, probably you'd made yourself, they would work. Because as long as, the, as long as the thing you measured across was the same as the, the, the size of the shot, then that would be okay. So if all the, the uh, gun, these measuring instruments across the Armada uh, were the same, although inaccurate, it wouldn't have mattered. They'd have still, they'd have still done the job. But that wasn't the case because we found, well, we didn't find um, more than 100 years ago um, uh, a similar object had been found, though it was unrecognized for what it was, from the Armada wreck uh, on the island of Mull in the, the, the Hebrides. Um, and it was, it, was, it was a brass one, not a, 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 but it was similarly uh, right up the spout as regards, you know, accuracy and, and, and conformity. Uh, but all the errors were quite different than the errors that were on the one we'd found elsewhere. So if you start thinking about this, and it's quite difficult because you see we are so conditioned in the modern age of conformity and you know standardized measurements and although if you remember uh one of the the uh, mars landings uh failed because somebody had confused inches with centimeters <laughs> um, and anyway uh it's not just at the individual of course people when they got a sets of balls and things they could work out which didn't didn't fit into the gun they wanted to put it but that's not where it happened it's 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 the, the supply system the manufacturing the, the supplying the dividing up the issuing to particular ships and so on um i think they had a huge huge problem in fact there's a, a nice again one of jeffrey's finds um there's, there, there's this thing in Samancus which simply draws a, a document with a load of circles drawn on it, different sizes. And by each circle, there is a, a number. And it, it's, it's the captain general of artillery, the biggest gun man in Spain, saying, I don't care what you, measurements you use. The, from now on, a circle this size and the number that's on it that's the bore of the gun and the weight of the shot that we put in it. So they, some people realize, but in, in, in a huge, you know, uh, chaotic bureaucracy such as Spain's, and, and not just Spain, you see, they've got different guns and shot coming from all over the place. They're all using different systems of weights and measures. They must have just had a huge model. The other thing we found uh, and this was both documentary and archaeological, uh, that the Spaniards didn't have the same kind of gun carriages as uh, the English did. The English had the type that we're very familiar with. You see on board HMS Victory and places like that. There are two sides with stepped, stepped edges uh, and four little round uh, wheels, one at each corner. And these could easily, be, the gun didn't project much behind the thing. Um, and there's quite a lot of it in the front, so you could push it well out. Um, uh, you could easily ha manhandle it back um, uh, to reload it. Uh, later, they used the recoil of the gun itself, uh, but that, that, that did come later. But even so, they were, they were efficient 
to use and particularly to reload at sea. So, uh, you know, if, if you could reload your, your guns twice as quickly as um, uh, your enemy, um, you only needed to have half as many. You know, it was a huge, huge advantage. The Spaniards, they weren't particularly bothered uh, with fast reloading because their guns, in in their way of thinking or the, what they wanted, would be just the final thing as you were closing in order to clap sides and board. You this one broadside, which would just create confusion and dismay uh, in the seconds before the troops were over the over the edge. So, so they had much simpler uh, two-wheeled gun carriages, uh, which are illustrated in the documents and also examples that we found on the wrecks. So, so that was another reason for the Spanish failure in artillery. But it wasn't it wasn't the crucial failure. Uh, the, the real the real uh, victor, so to speak, of, uh, against the Armada was Philip II himself. Well, with that, I'm so sorry, but I have to say that's all the time that we have today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, Again, my guest is Dr. Colin Martin. Uh, Colin, uh, do you have an online presence? Is there anywhere that uh, my listeners can uh, follow uh, any work that you're doing uh, moving forward? Uh, Not really. It is in the book. There is a, a, a... Our appendices got too long, and so some of them have been put online. And uh, if you buy the book, uh, you will be able to uh, access the um, uh, the online material. Fantastic. Well, I highly recommend that to uh, everyone listening. Uh, thank you again for joining us. And to the listeners, uh, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time.